didn't see it coming. The podcast about brands that learn from the past, are looking to the future, and are profiting because of it today. I'm your host, Mark Stoiber. Hello there. I have been a fan, a passionate fan of language and the power of language since I started in advertising 25 years ago as a writer. And when I shifted from mainstream advertising to start my own green brand agency with the aim of making sustainability sexy, one of the first people that I ran into was a master of language. His name is Jim Hogan, and he is a master of PR. But a long time ago, he got passionate about unearthing all the barriers that were coming up against making meaningful change on the climate portfolio. So why weren't people buying into what the climate scientists were saying? And when I got to know Jim years ago, he was about to launch a new book called Climate Cover-Up. And what that book was all about was essentially tracking the money trail, the people that were fighting against the climate scientists, who was paying them, what was their motivation. He also started another radical thing, uh, still radical today. It's called Desmog Blog, which is essentially the same thing, following the money trail to see who was opposing climate science, what their motivation was. So that was a very, very big deal. And Jim has now come out with a new book, a book that moves beyond the climate discourse, and he starts to examine the, the, the power of language and how our language is being destroyed and denigrated by more and more adversarial conversations, if you can even call them that. The book is called I'm Right and You're an Idiot, The Toxic State of Public Discourse and How to Clean It Up. Jim, we got you in between your book tours. You got to spend a couple minutes with us. Thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you for being interested. Yeah. Well, was that a good intro? It was great. Yeah? Did I make you... I didn't say tall. No, I'm, I'll try and make, make myself look taller. Tall. He's also tall and extremely good looking. So um, I started reading the book, and like Climate Cover-Up, I'm Right and You're an Idiot is... To me, first and foremost, the best thing about it is that it's a great read. It reads like a thriller novel. And you've brought in a ton of extremely, extremely smart people to write or co-write chapters with you on why our language is being denigrated and destroyed and how that is starting to stand in the way of progress for humanity. But it reads like a great novel. It's something that you can just keep turning the pages on. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Now, do you want to do you want to just give us the the twenty thousand foot overview? Because I want to dig into something very specific, but first give you a chance to sort of cover the inspiration behind it and how it unfolded for you. Yeah, I mean, I um, I've for a long time been interested in why it is we resist change, and and. I'm very interested in what I call change communications and the, the, the idea that the way things are isn't working and there, there are ways that things should be. And how do we kind of create a narrative around what that change should look like that motivates change? and that, that creates the space for conversations about what that change might look like. And I've been puzzled and frustrated about how the, the level of change resistance, how it is that people 
seem to um, not listen uh, or not understand or Mm -hmm. not care or not trust or, you know, all of these issues that we bump into as communications people. And, And so part of what I thought was this is such a complex problem. Like, why is it, in in spite of all of the evidence that we see with climate change, and I think of climate change as like a metaphor. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's you could look at social various kinds of social justice issues, uh, income inequality, um, uh, various kinds of discrimination, various kinds of hatred around the world. That these these they're really kind of uh, wicked problems that really resist change. They're like log jams. You That's just, right. You just can't seem to get them unblocked, no matter how much pressure you apply. Exactly, and so so I became and, and a David Suzuki. I'm, a, I'm on the board of the David Suzuki Foundation. Our entire board is very interested in this kind of change resistance and and being better at at communicating because we want to be effective. And I mean, that's ultimately what I'm interested in is communications that isn't a kind of a waste of your breath. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, you talked about one thing that was great right up front, right in the very beginning. You talk about David Suzuki leaning over to you and going, why aren't they listening? You know? Yes. Yeah. And it was, a, for me, a kind of a very special moment. Uh, Ray Anderson, the founder of uh, Interface Partners, was there. And uh, David was basically saying, you know, why aren't people out in the streets? Why aren't they demanding change? The evidence is overwhelming. And yet what we're what we hear is people kind of shouting at each other. There's not the change is that we should be seeing is not happening. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking and he actually asked me that question. I think it was like the first dinner that we had when I was asked onto the board. And I was asked onto the board because I'm a communications guy and got a reputation across the country for public relations. And I had no idea what the answer to that question was. But it seemed to me to be the question, you know, it's like kind of staring us right in the face. Why aren't people demanding change, particularly on on issues where there's a lot of evidence, right? So climate change, the reason that I think it's a great metaphor for these problems is that there's so much evidence and there's so little evidence that it's not a problem. So you have all this evidence that's saying it is, and still that's not enough. Yeah. So so all the science, all the credibility of the scientists isn't enough to, if you look at, I mean, you can, you know, you can think whatever you want to about the Paris agreements or, re, re, you know, things that you hear that people are doing and so on. And there are great things being done, but greenhouse gas emissions continue to rise. Mm-hmm. So really, and if you actually are looking for what's actually happening beyond the talk, things are not, uh, we, we're not having the impact yet. I mean, maybe they will be in the future, but right now I still, you know, I kind of shake my head at it. Anyway, so that's really, that was where the idea came from for the book. Now, I, I, one thing that's interesting, you, I remember from climate cover-up, uh, a big smoking gun was, you know what the media is doing? They have this thing where the, if you have an expert on one side, you have to have an expert on the other side. And so you balance it off. So on this side, you have 999 climate scientists who all agree on the one thing. We got to find one guy over here to disagree. And what that does in the public perception is make it look, here's a positive, here's a negative, but they both have equal validity. And And that was a big argument in climate cover-up. And now what I'm seeing, though, is even if 999 people were weighing in, and you know there's only one guy going against, it still won't change things. 
because people have a belief system, I guess a worldview, and they're they're watching this dialogue where it becomes what you, you know we talked about uh, pr- prior to this conversation. You know, three big forces. You've got advocate system as opposed to a discussion system. You've got morality that's playing into it, and you've got this fact that we want to be misled. Um, and so it isn't even. If I see a thousand climate scientists and one guy saying against and the evidence is overwhelming that the good guys are right, I'm still not going to make a change. So right. can you go into that, that, yeah, that adversarial thing? You talk, I, what really stuck was the advocacy, morality that blinds and binds, and the fact we want to be misled. Yeah, and so the way I, I mean, it was interesting on my um, climate cover-up book tour, one of the first talks I gave was at Yale. And it was to the Yale Student Union Debating Society. And there was 150 kids, you know, maybe fourth-year students, who, you know, and these are like seriously bright kids. And they had this debate about, was mainly about environment. And they asked me to speak at it. And they had this thing where if they liked what you were saying, they uh, they would pound the table. If they didn't like what you were saying, they would hiss. So it was a very interesting, at first it was kind of creepy, but within a minute or two, it was very, I liked it. You know, it was kind of, you're getting feedback, right? Yeah, a um, polling anyway. system. It's a great polling system. <laughs> polling system. Now, the group was actually divided into 10 political parties, all the way from communists to monarchists. And and so there was this great debate, and they debated about climate change, and they were going on about the environment, mainly climate change. And... Um, and then they wanted me to sum it up at the end. So we had this. It was a really interesting. You know, you had people, a lot of climate change denial, a lot of people, you know, saying, you know, arguing that people who thought that climate wasn't happening shouldn't even be allowed to speak in public. And so it was very, you know, they were having fun and trying to create arguments and so on. Anyway, right at the end, you know, they said, well, we want you to wrap it up. And I thought, oh, really? I thought I was finished. So I got up and I, and I, and I, I recalled for them, uh, something I learned in first year law school, and that was uh, when we were told that the law is based on the adversarial system, where you have, you know, a defense lawyer, you you have a prosecutor, and you have the judge, and they all have different jobs, and the idea is to like vigorously argue both sides. So what I learned, uh, you know, as I went through law school, is it's law is based on the adversarial system, and law penetrates everything we do. Uh, our business. Uh, world is is adversarial. Our uh, media are adversarial. Mm-hmm. Our sports institutions are adversarial. Highly competitive adversarial. So we live in a uh, democratic societies are adversarial societies. But nothing fundamentally flawed in that, unless I think you take it too far. And so what I was saying to them was that. My sense was that the thing that everyone in the room had in common, except one guy who I invited there to talk about climate science, who was one of the leading climate scientists in the world, except for him, the one thing we all had in common was we really didn't know anything about climate science. And yet we were having this vigorous debate as if we did. Mm-hmm. And it was highly polarized. And it was, but it was, it was, it's rooted in the way our society is structured. Polarization, I think, is a far bigger problem than misinformation, which is what I wrote about in Climate Cover-Up. I think taking, using ad hominem attacks, ad hominem attacks are like a... Personal uh, slurs. You, you're wrong because you're an idiot and you're obviously mentally deficient. 
That's right. But there's a, something going on that's a little bit different. Like they're, ad hominem is not just name calling, but it's more that what you're trying to do is slip around the argument that you should be facing up to and the discussion that you should be having, slipping around that to, um, to raising questions, uh, often in a very mean and offensive way, about people's character and their, their values and their intentions and so on. And so ad hominem attacks, just by their very nature, polarize. Uh, another thing that polarizes is, um, and, and there are a lot of people in my business who, rather than try to persuade you, will actually try to convince you to join Team A and line up against Team B. And the idea there is that if I join one team or another, there's all this research that shows that I automatically, without even necessarily going through the entire checklist, take on the values and the worldview of that team. And in order to maintain my membership in good standing, I need to continue to believe those things that that team believes. Right. So if you can convince someone, if, you have, if you're having a problem with, a, with the argument, so say if you're a big oil company and you don't quite know what to say about climate change because, yes, your product is actually warming the climate, right? Mm -hmm. Then what do you do? So one of the things that people have been doing in the oil and gas industry is creating this kind of polarization or dividing people into, um, into these sort of uh, righteous... Um, teams that basically, as uh, Jonathan Haidt says, you know, by evolution, we are, we have this human nature, almost, that we divide into teams, we line up against other teams, and that blinds us to the truth. And so that's a way of dealing with an argument that you can't make. One of uh, things that Noam Chomsky said to me was, you know, if you can't win an argument, shriek. Mm -hmm. Call people names, you know, denigrate them. And so that is another sort of polarizing force. I also think that people in the advocacy world uh, polarize by assuming that people who disagree with them are evil. Mm -hmm. And that sort of adv advocacy trap is also another source of this polarization. So, so we basically live in a world that is, is subject to various kinds of misinformation and propaganda, but not in the way we think. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily done through persuasion. It's done through um, dividing uh, people. Yeah. And uh, so, so anyway, so that's a part that, that to me, that kind of pollution in public discourse um, invades and, and drains the meaning out of narratives in the public square. Now, the, the words that you just used, this pollution in public discourse, is very interesting, the metaphor. Uh, because what, what we're finding, we are so overloaded with information uh, and opinion. I mean, everybody has an opinion. Everybody expresses it. The airwaves are saturated. The blog waves are saturated. We can't sort it out anymore. And then so the, perhaps the way to rise above is to become more and more outrageous to become more and more Trump. You know, uh, the only way that anybody's going to notice you is if you just come up with flagrant craziness and, 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 and shout down people and, you know, crooked Hillary them. Uh, and, 
and and that way people notice it and it it seems to be working and it, the, the truth is irrelevant you know i think that's what's left so many of us i think your book came out at a brilliant time whether on purpose or not but you're you just stepped right into it with the whole us elections you're going this guy, it's been proven by fact checker, Donald Trump, that as soon as he opens his mouth, he starts to lie. If you just check the facts, and he t- talks about crooked Hillary, and she, apparently she lies 27% of the time when she's doing public speaking. And just by shrieking, people are going, it works. It's working for him. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that, um, and it's all, as you know, these kinds of narratives are all target audience specific. Mm-hmm. But so just let's talk about Donald Trump's target audience. Mm-hmm. Um, facts do not do very well against demagoguery. And the reason demagoguery works is, I believe, and a lot of the people that I talk to mm-hmm. believe this, um, social scientists, political scientists, psychologists, phys- I mean, I, I talk to... Uh, psychotherapists. I mean, uh, they're very interesting, different ways of saying very similar thing. And and what they say is that we live in a world where uh, the public mind is beleaguered and that people are really frightened. Mm -hmm. People are frightened about the economy. They're frightened about the way they see the world changing around them. Uh, They're frightened uh, at immigration um, at uh, terrorism, they're, they're, the world is an, a much more uncertain and frightening place for people. And so that's a very real thing. So I think thinking about people, just somebody, be, just because you support Donald Trump does not mean you're an idiot. That's, that, I thought, was an amazing part of this book because automatically, from the other perspective, you just go, they must all be stupid. Right. Yeah, and, and, that's, and that's poisonous. Very, that's that doesn't this, they, they don't have to be stupid <laughs> and they don't have to be immoral or mm-hmm. evil to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? So, I mean, it, no, we're not going to make the world safer by giving people, you know, uh, military weapons and like, you know, launching a hate campaign against Muslims. That, I think common sense says that. But, you know, people come to think these things not through reason, but through uh, demagoguery having a conversation with fear that is more reassuring than the more complicated, uncertain, uh, frightening, less comforting conversation that comes through reason. Mm-hmm. And so so reason and facts and evidence when it tries to have a fight with demagoguery and this with this group that is frightened about all of these things uh, loses. And so that's, I think, what we're seeing with him, is he is speaking to fear. Mm-hmm. And what he's saying to people who are afraid is, I will protect you from those free trade agreements. I'll, I will protect our economy and your jobs from those Mexicans. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll protect you from those Muslims. Mm-hmm. And so, so when he, you know, people, you know, I'm, I, and I, I'm shocked that the media doesn't, most of the media doesn't seem to understand this, but you watch it on CNN and, you know, they, they can't believe, they're absolutely baffled that he's coming out mm-hmm. saying terrible things about this Mexican judge who isn't even really Mexican, right? Mm-hmm. And, but he's, this is not the rantings of a loose cannon. This is someone who's very carefully practicing propaganda mm-hmm. and a, the worst kind of propaganda, mm-hmm. demagoguery. So that, I think, is what we're seeing. 
Now, I want to switch gears on that because I I think, first of all, this book should be required reading for anyone who is trying to piece their way through the political landscape right now, especially south of the border. Uh, But I want to shift gears because I'm a brand guy. You're a PR guy. uh, We have that in common. And I want to to take a slightly different take on this book because uh, I'm sure everyone wants to talk about the politics of it, the climate change of it. But let's talk about the future for brands. Now, you know, you and I talked before this conversation about brands and brands, what we do, we shape an image that we want people to buy into, right? The client, the the brand specialist, we create this world and it's a superficial world. It's an image. And then we put it out there and it's very much a one-sided conversation. I call it a megaphone conversation, right? I get up there and I yell my message loud enough until eventually you buckle under and buy whatever I want to sell. But what we're seeing now is that the way to progress, the way forward, the way to engage people is to create what you said, an emergent communication. You said, you know, powerful communication, the communication of the future, hopefully, is going to be emergent. And by that, you meant I put something out there knowing full well I've only got part of the argument and I wait for you to contribute and we build and ladder it up until we've got something where we go, hey, that's better than either of us could have come up with by ourselves. So if I'm building a brand, I have to relieve control over the brand a bit to let people on the other side, the buying side, contribute to the conversation. That, I've been around brands for a while, is a terrifying prospect to brand people because people could just as soon say your brand sucks. So thoughts on that? Yeah, no, and I think that's exactly right. I, I, um, I think that the... Because of the levels of mistrust, um, disinterest, mm-hmm. I guess, mm-hmm. because of these polarizing forces, these are all uh, alive and sort of moving through the public square all the time. And they may not really have anything to do with your brand today, but that could change tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so in my view, and I kind of look at it more from a more limited view as a public relations <coughs> person, I, I think that the power behind um, a co-developed narrative mm-hmm. is in its sustainability. Um, because uh, if, I'm, if, I'm, if it's the story of me that I'm trying to sell or my company or my product, there's people can turn on you much easier than if it's the story of us mm-hmm. right and 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 a story that we have kind of co-developed mm-hmm. then there's a deeper sort of commitment and it seems to me that what ends up happening is that i believe is that you move beyond the information and the features and even you move beyond to a certain degree the emotions and you move into the values and into the into the meaning that's created by deep values. The deeper you can go into people's values, and that's what people people don't kind of allow strangers there. <laughs> it's a it's a kind of a back and forth. And but once you get to that, then I think what you're talking about is uh, real solid ground um, that 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 essentially helps you. And I've seen this over the years, and you know like capers when i worked on that crisis with capers and they came out of that crisis like with their sales like you know 25 percent above 
what they were when the crisis started, which is really unheard of when mm-hmm. like food quality problems like that hepatitis outbreak, right? Um, but the reason for that is because who they were was it was it wasn't that they were just a business. They were like a part of the community, and the community was a part of them. And so there was this kind of mix. So this isn't, I mean, people are doing this, and people have this, and people stumble onto it. I just think it's very dangerous to be on the just the, the story of me is a very risky, is a riskier thing than it, than it was even 10 years ago because of these big issues that we're facing today. Now, that that brings me to another point. Uh, The nature of advertising is you, the client, hire me, the advertiser, to craft your story for you and put it out there, which to me uh, removes you, one, from the discourse right there, and it it, it puts this level of uh, superficiality in there. Uh, As you know, I, I started this new company called Your Ultimate Speech because what I see is people trusting brand conversation a whole lot less because it's a one-way street and basically bad people can hide behind a shiny brand and they're asking more and more people to get up on the podium and give their speech because they want to actually see if they like this guy and 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 to get dig a little bit deeper and hear what they really think now maybe that works maybe that doesn't but uh do you think that the future is going to be more when it comes to brands that we want to know the people who are making the stuff i always point to yvonne schwinnard right at patagonia you go the guy had no deeper uh purpose than just to go climbing and surfing and he just started to build stuff because all the stuff he saw was really crappy and all he wanted to do was go climbing and surfing. And he's that transparent. Do you think that that will be the next wave? Capers is another example. They're in the community. They, 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 even though they are a corporation, they, have, they seem to have a more uh, pressing interest to be part of the community. And so when we see the guys at Capers, we go, I like that guy. He's like a guy that I, you know, I can have a conversation with and he can listen. He's not just putting a megaphone out there. Do you think that's going to be more the way of the future where brands are saying, tell us what you think. Uh, here's what I think. Here, why don't we engage as opposed to putting out the megaphone message? I think it's safer. I think it's, I, I just think, you know, my area is crisis. And you, when, you, when things go wrong, you really want to have that, the, you want to have found the common ground mm-hmm. between you and your community. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you know, as you know, there's there's big authenticity mm-hmm. issues, right? And and there's an authenticity issue in the kind of one-way communications model. Right. The the greatest authenticity comes when you and I when when we think of think of communications not as me doing something to you, mm-hmm. me sort of injecting information into you because you need to know this or whatever, mm-hmm. but more that you and I go on a journey. Mm-hmm. And and it's into this kind of common ground area where the people who are in, who have found that common ground have much more loyalty. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they have uh, more safety. The, there's more kind of sustainability. There's more, it's easier to uh, talk about it mm-hmm. uh, and who you are because uh, the other people kind of know who you are because that's who they are too, mm-hmm. right? So it's a the whole thing becomes it's harder to kind of I think depends on the business. I mean, if you're in a business that is just by its very nature something that is 
you know, it may be helpful sometimes, but is really quite destructive. Mm-hmm. Uh, or in the case of oil, right, it's very helpful and very destructive. You know, it's harder for them. Mm-hmm. But other kinds of companies and industries that don't have that kind of, I guess, dramatic downside in the case of oil, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's the way to go. It's finding common ground and being able to have a conversation about common values. Mm-hmm. Now, t- let's, let's, let's finish on that because oil, it's always the easy go-to, right? And that's, that seems to be a real flashpoint for advocacy, yelling back and forth, uh, you know, creating the ad hominem arguments. You talk a lot in uh, I'm Right and You're an Idiot about the Canadian Harper government, how they took a whole bunch of Indigenous groups and basically called them foreign-funded radicals and did everything they could to discredit them as people uh, just so they could dodge the argument. Oil. Uh, is there a way forward? Is there a way for oil companies to legitimately, and not like Enbridge, uh, ask people what they think and have a two-way conversation, or is it forever going to be stuck in, I'll give you option A, option B, you choose, hey, look, we're having a real conversation. Well, interestingly, there's an example I can point to where um, uh, Sapor Berman and a number of other environmental groups have sat down with uh, leaders from the oil and gas industry in Alberta because the new premier of Alberta has said, look, unless you guys can come up with some kind of, you know, can find some kind of common ground on this, uh, I'm not, I'm going to just focus on other greenhouse gas emission sources and Mm -hmm. the oil sands will be left out of it. Mm -hmm. So they were both kind of motivated to sit down and they spent, um, in a, in a very intense dialogue situation over well over a year, maybe a year and a half, uh, working through a bunch of issues, trying to kind of overcome a lot of the, the barriers that they had built between each other, mm-hmm. uh, to try and figure out recommendations that would, they would make to the government for good climate policy. And the, the policy that would clean up the oil sands, but at the same time not shut it down. Yeah. And uh, so, so I think it's ag- absolutely possible. It's just extremely difficult. And uh, but I think in this case, you could see it happening. And I think, you know, I mean, there's always pitfalls. But I think this, to me, is a very good step in the right direction. So, so you know, oil has done a lot of good in the world. You know, um, but. <laughs> It, it has, uh, t- there's flaws, you know. And uh, it's funny because, you know, you come back to oil and you, you, make that, you make that argument in the book and you just say it has done a lot of good in the world, but then that doesn't mean that you should be putting it into a religious camp and going, it's either the oil way or no way. That's right. You know? Yeah, and that sort of, so that kind of, um, the, the oil I think is a very good, in the oil sands, a very good example of the weighing the highly polarizing way of trying to deal with issues mm-hmm. and conflict to the sort of more collaborative. And you kind of have to do both. Mm-hmm. But if you, you know, because if all you're trying to do is collaborate, it could be, it would be anemic. Well, yeah, it's going to be so like, it's going to be like a, a parent teacher meeting or a parent, a parent auxiliary council meeting where everybody gets to stand up and make their points and nothing actually happens. That's right. Or, or you're just trying to get along. And, yeah. But there are a bunch of issues here that you can't get along on. So, so I think you need to kind of be able to do both. And we tend to be 
we tend to typically be like really good at the polarizing part. And I think that's why it took them so long when they were sitting down. You know, they had people from Cap and all these big oil companies. But I think in the end, you once you start to realize that people are well-intentioned mm-hmm. and they want to solve the problem, they may not agree with you and they may not see the world the way you do, but they want to try and fix things. Mm-hmm. Um, that's... Uh, Things can get done, you know, and and I think to take it back to your world, there is a version of that that happens in all communications uh, and trying to um, what I call a pluralistic narrative where you're basically looking at uh, developing stories that leave room for people who you may not particularly like or agree with, but you know in your heart of hearts that unless you include them, Nothing's going to get done. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, if you do listen to them, you might miss. If you don't listen to them, there might be an Achilles heel in what you're saying, and somebody's going to come and bite you in that Achilles heel. And, and these guys, because they don't like you, you don't really get along. But they're going to point out stuff that is very, very useful stuff. Exactly. I mean, they say business people see the world in a very different way than scientists and mm-hmm. advocates, and and there's huge value in it. Yeah. Yeah. Jim, thank you so much for taking this time out. I know you're an extremely busy guy. I'm right and you're an idiot. The Toxic State of Public Discourse and How to Clean It Up by James Hogan, H-O-G-G-A-N. Anything you want to do as a final sort of wrap-up? No, I just want to thank you very much for this. Awesome. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time again. Okay, take care. Talk to you. You've been listening to Didn't See It Coming, the podcast about brands that learn from the past, are looking to the future, and are profiting because of it today. I'm your host, Mark Stoiber. If you want to get a hold of me, drop me an email at mark, M-A-R-C, at markstoiber.com, M-A-R-C-S-T-O-I-B-E-R.com. Have a good one.